Uh, let me introduce to you my friend Franco. I've known him for many years. Thank you, thank you. And he is kind of the, well, he's the youth leader that's bringing the whole team. So this is my friend Franco Brevard, and he's going to read Isaiah 12. Okay. Good morning, everybody. I'm trying to do my best. Okay. Our first reading is from the prophet Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for through you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great is your, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, the Word of the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. If you're the sort of person who follows a sports team, you're called a fan. A fan is actually from the word fanatic, and I'm going to admit that I am a rabid fan, a fanatic of a few teams. Here's what I've learned over several decades of following these teams. Generally, the end of the season always ends in pain and disappointment. It pretty much is the standard rule. And as I've raised kids into these same rabid fan bases, I've had to try to tell them, through my great wisdom, how ridiculous it is to be crying at the end of the season. Because obviously, did you really expect them to win it all? I'm much wiser. And I've steeled myself with a combination of pessimism, and stoicism, 
and general hardness of heart towards my favorite teams. And yet, bizarrely, at the beginning of each season or the playoffs or a tournament, there's optimism. Maybe this year they'll win it. It's very confusing. You're pessimistic, you're optimistic, you don't know what to do. It's like the average English football fan. This is how they live their life. Constantly hoping and yet constantly depressed. Can you imagine, for those of you who aren't sports fans, because I know not everyone is, if instead, let's say, you love literature and you start reading Jane Austen and about four-fifths of the way through the novel, Elizabeth Bennet gets run over by a carriage. The rest of the story continues on, but she's not in it anymore. No Darcy, no nothing. You say, well, maybe that was just that one book. So you pick up Emma, but halfway through, an archery accident ends her life. And the story named after her continues on without her as a character. Would you keep reading Jane Austen novels? No, pretty soon you would realize that the end doesn't end the way we expect it to, and, and we're just done with it. What happens when it's not a football team or a fiction character? But we face real loss, real difficulty, real challenges, real suffering, real tragedy. When you look over the course of your life and the career trajectory that you thought you were on was a series of disappointments, in and out of jobs and you're currently unemployed. When you had all these longings for marriage and decades later you've never had it realized or when you did it was a crumbling disappointment. Or you get the news that turns your world upside down and all your hopes and expectations all your dreams of the future are dashed. What do we do then? We are people who are deeply affected by our circumstances. And how, how do we respond to real suffering, to the types of circumstances that hit us and we're run over by them? I've found that circumstances and things like suffering cause us to respond in one of a few ways. You see it in your average fan, too. Sometimes we respond to suffering with optimism. It won't be that bad. You get the bad news. It's not going to be that bad. I'm sure something good will come of it. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't end the way you're hoping, that optimism turns to disillusionment and often a loss of faith. Some people don't respond with optimism to suffering and challenges. They respond instead with bitterness and anger. Over the course of years, they become pessimistic because they realize it is that bad. Life is that hard. And that sort of person ends up blaming because if stuff that's happening is bad, you've got to blame somebody. Either yourself, what did I do to deserve this? Others, it's their fault or God. And if you don't swing between optimism and pessimism, you'll often turn to stoicism. The stoic basically says, it doesn't matter. Don't put all of your hopes in this world. Have fewer desires. It's actually the Buddhist approach. You harden yourself and you detach from your feelings, from other people. And I'm going to tell you, stoicism will actually get you through a lot of hard times. But you will be less human in the process. 
Why are we so affected by circumstances? I find if I track through my emotions in a given week, it depends on the day how I'm doing. If it's a good day, like things are generally going well, I, I feel well, um, I have things I'm looking forward to at the end of the day, have good time with family or friends, then I'm generally positive, happy, upbeat. But the next day turns and work is hard or you get bad news or you fight with your spouse and depression sets in for the next 24 hours. The way that we get moved about by circumstances is actually very natural. But when real suffering strikes, it can completely obliterate us because we're blown to and fro by whatever is happening around us and to us. I'm, uh, I'm not a sailor, and I've only been on a sailboat once. I was working at a Young Life camp, Saranac Lake, up in upstate New York after my senior year in high school for a month long. And during that month of working, I got a day off every couple of weeks, or every week you get a day off. And so during my day off, I went with a friend, and, and he said, hey, let's go in one of these sunfish, those little sailboats that can fit two people. Really, they're only made for one, but two people get on them. And Saranac Lake is this very, very large lake up in the Adirondacks close to Lake Placid. So he told me that he knew how to sail. I knew how to swim, so that was a good combination. I figured we could go. So we started out, and at first it was working fine. I ducked down every time the sail swung around and he did everything else. But the wind was pretty strong that day, as it often is in Saranac Lake. And pretty quickly, 10 minutes later, we were pushed a mile out. He didn't know how to get us back. I couldn't swim that far. We were stuck. The wind had taken us. He didn't know how to guide against it, to use the wind to his advantage, and I was even more useless. Eventually, somebody had to come out in a motorboat and drag us back in. Most every one of us think that we are experienced sailors, that we can take control, that we can manage the winds. But like inexperienced sailors, my observation of myself and many others is that the culture and the circumstances that are around us blow us to and fro. We're not nearly as moored and grounded and experienced as we think. And so depending on what's happening to us, we're either incredibly happy or incredibly down. Our view of the world and of ourself is shaped by everything around us. Our approach to life is constantly shifting by the winds. The gospel that Paul is talking about in Romans 5 is meant to ground us and reorient us, enable us to navigate through life with strength and direction and hope. My goal this morning, as we look at Romans chapter five, is the recognition of a couple things. One, you need to have faith in Christ, but you also need to have good theology. If you just believe, that's good. You must believe in Christ. But what you believe in Christ or about Christ matters too. It's your trust and faith combined with grounded truth that enables you to mature, to have a mature worldview and a mature self-understanding that is not blown to and fro 
by circumstances. The gospel calls us to believe in Jesus Christ crucified for us, but it also calls us, as Paul does in Romans, to understand the implications. In Romans chapter one through four, Paul is explaining the gospel, and then starting in chapter five, he's explaining the implications of the gospel. He says, here's what you need to believe. You are a sinner saved by Jesus who died for you. Now, work that into your heart. Understand the implications of that for your self-understanding and the world around you and work it out in your life. You need to not just believe that Jesus died for you, you need to understand it and work it in and work it out of your life. But few of us do. Richard Lovelace, a theologian, wrote years ago, only a fraction of Christians are appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Below the surface, many are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. We tend to start each day with our personal security resting not on the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements. Even as Christians, we are blown about by our feelings and our circumstances and largely unprepared for the true storms of life. And Paul says, it it doesn't need to be that way. Understand the gospel. Work it into your heart deeper and work it out in your life further. And that's what he's doing. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, he says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Now, as Paul's talking about this, he's using suffering as an example of working out the implications of the gospel. This isn't just a whole passage about suffering. He's saying, hey, I'm gonna tell you about the gospel. I'm gonna explain how you can work it out in a particular instance, and then I'm gonna explain the gospel again because I want it to sink in deep and work out into your life. But as you read a phrase like this, this is a challenging one for any one of us who have actually dealt with true suffering. Because Paul seems to be saying, yay, suffering. And most of us don't like that idea. It seems ridiculous. And actually it is ridiculous. And that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying go around celebrating suffering like a masochist looking for danger and trouble and pain in your life. It will come. So what is he saying? He's saying we can rejoice even in our suffering because the God we believe in works in and through even the most challenging parts of life. If your faith is in Christ, if you are truly gospel-driven, then that suffering can result in all sorts of things, endurance, character, hope. Endurance is this idea of being strengthened and focused. That word character is actually tested or proven. The idea that's going on here is like, if you take iron ore and you put it in an oven that's incredibly hot, it burns off the nitrogen and the phosphorus and the carbon and produces steel, which is significantly stronger because it's been tested and proven, if you would, in the fire than iron was. And a person who has a tested life when their faith has been in Christ is able to have hope, not some optimistic hope everything's gonna work out, but because their hope is grounded in God and not in their circumstances. That's what Paul is talking about. 
And he's also using suffering to identify certain things. Suffering, and you can observe this in your own life or others, suffering is profoundly reorienting or disorienting. Suffering is either reorienting or disorienting depending on who your God actually is. It will either reorient you towards God or you'll be left completely disoriented because your true God does not stand up under the weight. Martin Luther put it this way, and this is a paraphrase of Luther's commentary to Romans. Suffering takes from a person everything in which he trusts and leaves him naked and poor. It also prevents him from placing hope in his own goodness or other people or anything else. Basically leaves you trusting in God alone. Why is difficulty so hard for us? It's because we're so used to controlling our environment and living independent. We, especially in the West, demand control and we love self-reliance. And suffering will strip you of both. It reveals what you're truly relying on and where you're putting your hopes. And that's actually the right understanding of Paul's use of the word rejoice. When he says rejoice in your sufferings, it's actually the, the word boast. If you go through most commentaries, they translate it boast. Last week, if you weren't here, we looked at Romans chapter three. And in Romans 3.27 says, Paul says, there's no longer any grounds for boasting in our goodness because we rely totally on the cross of Christ. And that idea of boast is not just somebody walking around pumping their chest and talking about how great they are. It's the idea of where do you put your confidence? What is your source of hope? You rejoice in, you boast in, in the biblical language, the biblical understanding, in whatever it is you turn to to assure yourself that you matter, that your life matters. When you're comparing yourself to others, this is what you use to test yourself against them, to say, yes, I'm okay. It's the thing that you hold out in front of you and say, if I have that, if I just get there, then I've made it, then I'll be okay. You boast and rejoice in whatever matters most. It's whatever you're ultimately living for. And Paul is saying, believer, believer, Christian, rejoice, boast, hope in the gospel, in all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So that you can even face suffering and know that God is going to work out his eternal purposes. Right? The cross was a pretty horrible thing. But the cross of Christ is a strong indication that even in suffering, God's saving purposes are not thwarted. And Paul, in the rest of this whole chapter, in the sections around this little bit on suffering, is trying to say, think through the implications of the gospel. Work them deep into your heart and work them out in your life so that you can apply them in every situation. And here are some of the things that he talks about as he's talking about the implications of the gospel. He, in verses one and two, he's talking about how our past, our present, and our future are secure because of what God has done in Christ. He writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is our gospel foundation. This is what needs to be worked into your heart. 
that you and I are justified by faith. We have peace with God. This is not a feeling, I feel like I'm at peace with God. It's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. When he died and rose again and I put my trust in him, that secured my peace with God. That set me right before God, not because of who I am today. Who I am today is based on what he's done in the past. And now talking about the present, he says we have access into that grace in which we stand. We dwell, that, that, that idea of access into the grace in which we stand is, is basically this, where you live, where you dwell. You don't fall in and out of grace. Now you might fall in and out of sin or in and out of doubt, but you do not fall in and out of grace. If your faith is in Christ, you live in the realm of God's grace. You are a citizen of the kingdom of grace. That is where you go to sleep and where you wake up. Your past is secure, your present is dwelling in grace, and in your future, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That we will be made into the image of God, that he is going to conform us into his image. Hope in Christianity is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is the sure and certain promises of God. And guess what? God of the Bible is outside of time. We think of hope as future, like, oh, that's going to happen then. God doesn't look at the future and say, oh, I wonder if it'll happen. The promises of God for you in Scripture about your future are as certain and sure as if they happened yesterday. The promises of God for you in Scripture are as sure and certain as if they happened yesterday. Your past is secure. Your present is secure. Your future is secure. How can we rejoice, hope, through sufferings? Because we already rejoice, have our confidence in the gospel. Because we know, deep down in, God loves us and is with us. Paul talks about that several times in this passage. It's not just that you're secure in some legal sense. It's God actually loves you. Don't think that you're going through something hard. God's out to punish you and get you. God loves you. In verse five, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is the experience, the experience of God's love. Some of you have had significant experiences where you have felt or heard God speak to you and say, I love you. I deeply care about you. Or at least you've had those experiences of joy, tears, that overwhelming sense that you get, that you know that God really does care about you. And you're moved to desire God more and more and more. Many of you in this room have experienced God in that way at some point, maybe in the past, maybe irregularly, but you know what it is to experience God's love for you. But even if you've not felt that, even if you're more emotionally flatlining, robotic, like me, Paul's gospel assures you, you are loved. So live out of that reality. Don't go searching for experiences. Live out of what God says to you about his love for you. You know, all of us, every human being that I've come across is searching for love and for peace. We want our anxious hearts 
the anxious part of us that says, who are you? Does your life really matter? That part of us that wonders, do we measure up? We want peace, right? We are constantly striving, especially in this culture, to prove ourselves, to prove ourselves against others in school, on the sports field, as a parent in work. We try to prove ourselves in order to get that peace, to assuage ourselves, yes, I do matter. But even if you get to the goals that you think will get you peace, it's never enough. It doesn't satisfy the depth of your longing for peace. We don't only long for peace, we want to be loved. Each one of us is wired relationally with a desire to be known and accepted. We are deeply afraid of being alone. And our deepest fear is this. If people actually knew me, if people actually knew you, if they knew the thoughts that went through your head, the criticism, the darkness, if they knew the things you had done, they would either laugh at you or be terrified and reject you. Paul is saying here and throughout Romans, every other source we turn to for peace or love can and will be shaken or lost by circumstances. And ultimately, even if you have it, whatever it is you're after, it cannot ultimately satisfy. The depth of our eternal spiritual need is too great. Our hearts are restless, as Augustine said, until they find their rest in God. The gospel is the only true source of lasting, unshakable peace and love. The second half of this passage is Paul laying out the peace and the love that we have securely in Christ. Verse eight of Romans five says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're not a feelings person or you've never experienced the tearful joys of God's love for you, this is saying, even if you don't feel it or your circumstances don't affirm it, God loves you. And it's not based on your deserving or worthiness. It says while you were sinners, you're messed up, you're broken, God loves you. God knows you deeply. He knows all of your darkness. He doesn't laugh. He will not reject. He dies for you. The cross is God's finished exclamation. I love you and always will. If you have suffered a lot of heartbreak in life, if you have experienced rejection upon rejection, if you dealt with a parent or parents who are cold and unloving, if you have experienced abuse, and I know many in here have, hear this gospel. You have a loving father. And like the story of the prodigal son, he is waiting to embrace you every single day. The love you're searching for is found in him. God offers us his love, and he offers us true peace. Verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more will be saved by his life. This is the assurance that you cannot, if your faith is in Christ, fall out of his love for you. 
you will sin. Before this day is out, you will sin at least once, maybe twice. You will doubt, you will struggle in life. But the gospel declares there is no more condemnation for you. You have peace with God. And it's a peace you cannot lose. And he, he argues from lesser to greater, saying, look, when you were enemies of God, he died for you. You were against God. Your whole life was turned away from him. He died for you. How much more, now that you've been reconciled to God, will he make sure you get to the end? You begin by grace, you continue by grace, you get finished by grace. It depends on him, not you. All the love and peace we're looking for can only be found in Christ, but it can be fully found in Christ. And so, as Paul says in verse 11 to close out this section, we rejoice, we boast, we place our hope in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the source of our rejoicing, our hope, our boasting, our confidence, our assurance? It's God and all he's done for us. That is our only source of hope. When that becomes your reality, when you let that work into your heart and you let it start to work out into your life, here's what you find. It, your highs are not too high and your lows are not too low. You know, if you're placing all of your hopes in something other than God and you get those things, you will be ruthless to get them and you'll be unbearable if you do get them. Look at somebody who puts all of their hopes in their career. They will be vicious and if they get everything they're looking for, they will be unbearable. And if you're putting all of your hopes in something other than God, your lows will be crushingly low. When your spouse, who you put all your hope in, rejects you, when your kids walk away, when everything you've been longing for is taken from you, you will be crushed and despairing. And I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't be positive when you have successes, or you shouldn't be upset when bad things happen. It's that they are not your heaven and they are not your hell. We don't live for our successes and dreams because we know they cannot satisfy us. The love that we're seeking, the peace our heart needs, the hope for our future can only be found in Christ. You know, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us. It tells us that every one of us is a sinner, that we are destined for God's judgment and eternal wrath. But Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we can have forgiveness and eternal life. That is good news. But the gospel is not just about being saved from judgment and hell, as if it's some sort of spiritual eternal fire insurance. Through Christ, God offers us his love, his peace, his joy, his hope, life to the full now. Don't settle for fire insurance. Paul is saying here, the gospel has profound implications for you, for how you deal with success and how you deal with suffering, for how you view yourself and how you approach the world. 
So continue to work it in to your heart, to the center of who you are. Let it become your foundation and work it out in your life and in the world. Let's pray. God, our Father, we put our trust in so many other things and are often moved around by the circumstances of life. The good, the bad, drive us to and fro. We fail to realize how much you love us and all that you offer us. May the truth of your love for us reach deep into our hearts this morning and drive us out into the world in peace and joy and hope. Amen.